to us in different ways today. I appreciate it so very much, and uh, what a blessing it has been, even tonight. And uh, children, you did a great job. I appreciate your ministry to us this evening. Thank you for that, and uh, appreciate it so much. And uh, who knows, children, you may move, graduate to the other bells, right, later on, as you just saw. I don't know about you, but for me, the colored one would work much better. Just tell me what color and I have, and when I can ring it, and I can do that. But uh, appreciate uh, Patch and Pee Wee. You did a great job tonight. Thank you so very much. And let me encourage you to continue to, to pray uh, for the Quicks, specifically Miss Linda Quicks' sister. They were able to make it out there. I believe it's Pennsylvania. Is that right, Brother Ron? Is it Pennsylvania? Craig, yeah. Pennsylvania. So they made it out there on Friday. Miss Kristen, Matt, they, they went Friday evening into Saturday. And so just pray for them. Uh, they were able to spend some time with her sister. So we rejoice over that yesterday, a little bit today. And so would you just pray? They need much grace. And uh, as uh, basically she's on hospice care and things, not sure how long she'll make it. So pray for them. Pray for Brother Ron and Melissa, he is unable to head over there this weekend due to a lot of responsibilities with school and other things. And so just pray for them. Certainly their hearts are there too. And so just pray that the Lord would minister to them these days ahead. Then also let me encourage you, Miss Angie Looney's surgery went well. And so she's at home recovering. Everything went well. In fact, it went better than some of her other surgeries. In her mind, the recovery and so the pain. And so we rejoice over that. We're thankful for that. And so I encourage you to continue to pray for both of those in, in this situation. All right, we're going to delve into God's Word. You see the title of the message is simply this. And children, I'd remind you, I have the box of candy up here, and so you come see us afterwards, and, uh, and make sure you take notes. Maybe we'll ask you a question, whatever the case may be. But tonight, uh, the title of the message is this, God's Desired Powerful Paradoxes, okay? God's Desired Powerful Paradoxes, all right? So it begs the question right away, what is a paradox, all right? What is a paradox? Well, I can tell you, it is not this, okay? A pair of docs, okay? So let's just get that out of the way. Some of the children might have thought, well, paradox, that's a couple of doctors, amen? All right, that's not what it is. What is a paradox? Well, most of us would certainly know a paradox would go along with this definition. A statement that is seemingly contradictory, yet is true based upon accepted or acceptable premises or facts. Okay, so let's think through this definition because it will help us as we look at God's paradoxes. He has some for us tonight. I'm not going to take a long time tonight. It'll be somewhat short and simple to the point, but God has shared in his word some paradoxes. All right, what's a paradox? A statement that is seemingly contradictory. It doesn't, it doesn't seem to make sense, we might say it on first glance. It doesn't seem to go together. It seems contradictory. It goes against itself. But when looked at, when based upon the perspective of known or acceptable premises and facts, truths, then we realize that it is true. And so we're going to see that play out tonight, all right? Um, Some of the Greek philosophers of old, they love to postulate about paradoxes. Uh, Why? Because it made you think outside the box uh, than normal thinking. In other words, it really challenged you uh, outside the usual way of thinking. Paradoxes do. They make you stop and think for a moment, we might say. And uh, outside the normal way of thinking, you have to think about them differently when you consider them. Let me give you a few examples, okay? Number one, okay, this little joke here, right? Or a little comic, I should say. Paradoxes. You can't live with them, and you can't live without them. Okay, you ever said that about anything? I've said that about my phone. I don't know about you, but can't live with it, can't live without it, all right? It annoys me, but at the same time, I need it, right? So that's a great definition in that comic uh, about paradoxes. What is a paradox? And it seems contradictory, okay? That seems contradictory, but we kind of know what it means. When we think about it, we put it into personal perspective. Yeah, I get it. Can't live with it, can't live without it, okay? Here's another one, and I, I like this one personally. Um, uh, the, the characters from uh, Peanuts here. If you want to understand 
understand the Bible, you need to think in terms of paradox. Okay? God makes something out of nothing that seems incongruent and seems contradictory. Okay? He wins by losing. He died on the cross. He, he went to the grave. Uh, he lifts us up by bringing us low. He turns Good Fridays into Easter Sundays. He works opposite to the way humans or humanity logically expects an omnipotent God to work. I forgot to pack my lunch today. Could you float me alone? Give and you shall receive. There's a paradox. Give and you shall receive, all right? It's a great illustration of what a paradox is. In reality, there are many in scriptures, and we'll see that as we look at a passage tonight and we uh, understand it. It challenges our normal thinking, a paradox does. It, It makes us think about things a little bit different than what we might be used to. In other words, what we might do from a human earthly perspective, it challenges us to think it from an all different perspective. And the scriptures are full of paradoxes, okay? Uh, we will often look at things from that human or earthly perspective, and yet God presents it from a heavenly or spiritual perspective, uh, what we might say a godly perspective. One such a, uh, illustration of this is found here in Second Corinthians chapter 6. In fact, there's several um, presentations of paradoxes here. Okay, now let's get context. At the end of the previous chapter, Paul is explaining, in fact, for several chapters here, Paul is talking about his own ministry. But while talking about his own ministry, he is giving us an example. He is challenging us to follow some of his examples that he has laid forth, okay? So throughout these chapters, it isn't just a history course on Paul. It is literally challenging you and I to have a similar ministry to Paul. At the end of chapter 5, he is telling us that we have the ministry of reconciliation the ministry of reconciliation in fact he says because you have the ministry of reconciliation you are what for christ you are ambassadors like an ambassador that would go to a foreign country and represent a country you and i are here on earth a foreign land to heaven and we are representing god telling people that they can be reconciled to god That a group of people who have been estranged from God because of their sin, that have been separated from God. I love the Bible verse that says your sins have separated you between you and God. They've separated you from God. We have the ministry of reconciliation. In fact, he says in chapter 6 here, verse number 1, he makes the statement that we, like him, are workers together with him. And I like that. He says, we are workers together with him. Now, the with him is with God. He talks about that ministry that that Christ uh, made possible on the cross of Calvary, how he reconciled mankind to God the Father through the cross of Calvary. And he says, we like him are workers together. We're all workers together uh, with God in this ministry of reconciliation. In fact, he literally calls us ministers of God. In fact, verse number four then goes on to say this. Don't miss it. We should approve or prove ourselves as the ministers of God. And then in, he lists several areas. Okay, There's some great, great passage uh, here that he says, all right, by your very living, you ought to demonstrate that you are the ambassadors of God. In verses 4 through 10, in this huge swath of verses, he lists many, a multitude of areas in which he exemplifies. Paul, again, is speaking of his ministry, but in speaking of his own ministry, he's saying, listen, Christian, this ought to describe you. This ought to be characteristic of your life as it is of my life. In fact, it's the Holy Spirit using Paul as the example, be you followers of him as he is followers of Christ, challenging us, all right, in these areas in your life, you ought to be an ambassador. Here's how you will look like a worker or a minister of God. And it's a great truth. In this list, now we are presented with several paradoxes. 
and they give us <laughs> practically some exhortation on how to live as ministers of God. Tonight, I want to focus in on just three of them. Just three paradoxes that God gives us in His Word that uh, as believers, as we labor for the kingdom of God, um, they ought to show up in our lives. In, uh, in other words, okay, let's go back to what a paradox is. It's a seemingly, uh, seeming contradiction, yet when viewed through the lens of acceptable premises or facts, we realize they're true. So for you and I as believers, we know that we have been bought with a price, that we are not to live for ourselves. We're to live for God. We're living unto His glory. We are living as ambassadors, my friend. There is no one else on earth that is living as an ambassador for someone else that is not on earth. You and I are. We are representing the very God of heaven here on earth. We are his ambassadors with the ministry of reconciliation, and we are to make him shine. We are his light. And we could go on and on with the perspective, the premise, the truth by which we are going to live. Don't miss it. We are going to live a contradictory life. A life that contradicts what this world says life should look like. A successful life, a productive life, how the world defines it contradicts how you and I are in many ways commanded to live. Paul hits upon this. If you were to study the life of Paul, you would realize his life was contradictory to what most people say life should be, how it should be lived. And so he's going to show us, even from his own example tonight, some of these things. The first one is found in verse 10. We'll read just to the first semicolon. Look at verse 10, 2 Corinthians chapter number 6. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Love the statement. Paradox number one, if you're writing them down, is simply this. Believers should always rejoice, though life could often produce sorrow. Believers should always be found to be rejoicing, though life often produces sorrow. Now, this is a great statement in verse 10. It is a challenging statement, but it is also, may I put it this way, it is a real statement. It is a seeming contradiction. That's clear, isn't it? Endure sorrow by rejoicing. Okay, uh, you are going to have sorrow. Life is going to be pain. Life is going to be difficult. Okay, Paul's being real. Now let's think about it as Paul speaks of it. He's saying no person's life is perfect. Every person's life is filled with pressures and problems, disappointments, heartaches, sorrows, hurts. Paul was not an exception. We think of the life of Paul. He was hurt. He was beaten. He was stoned. He was left for dead. We think of what he endured, slander, mocking. He lost all of his family connections. He most likely, and most commentators, most historians believe that he lost a family inheritance along the way. He had nothing. He was cut off from his family. Now in every synagogue he went into, before Paul would have walked in the synagogue and he would have been rejoiced, celebrated. Uh, they would have clamored for his, his autograph. But not now. He was rejected and disavowed by the Jews. He was looked down upon. He was spit upon. He, he, he went through terrible things. He was persecuted beyond measure. He was chased out of cities and towns, kicked out, many other things, shipwrecked. We know the entire story. Life was painful for Paul at times, more often than not. This was cause for sorrow on a human level. Anybody looks at Paul's life and says, man, you have an unlucky life. That, that, that is a difficult life. That is a life that should produce much sorrow, much pain, much heartache. And yet Paul is saying that's, uh, we need to rejoice 
always. See, life is painful for each of us at times. Each one of us are afflicted. We're troubled. We're terribly disappointed at at moments of life. And yet, if we endeavor to live godly, the Bible tells us what? We will suffer persecution. These are all ingredients or uh, promoters of sorrow in life and going through the reality of it. Life is troublesome. Life is painful. In fact, anyone who thinks that the Christian life will make life on earth perfect, carefree, sorrow-free, is simply uh, subscribing to foolishness. Nowhere does the Bible say that the Christian life is going to be easy, that it's going to be free of sorrow, it's going to be free of hurt, that it's going to be free of pain, that it's going to be free of discouragement, that it's going to be free of disappointments, that things will go perfectly according to our plan. Nowhere does the Bible promise that. In fact, it is somewhat the opposite. Life is difficult. Life is pain. Life hurts. There is sorrow to life. We've all experienced it. You may be going through a difficulty right now. You may be going through a sorrowful trial in your own life. The Bible is clear in the passage, the paradox, if you will. Though that is true, though you and I go through difficulties and and things hurt and things cause us pain and and our heart sorrows at times, the reality is the Christian minister, the person who ministers for God, even though they face their fair share of sorrows and troubles and heartaches and trials, They have a unique personal culture, an outlook of always rejoicing in everything. Now think with me, will you? Paul, who's gone through so many things, and remember, he wrote the book of Philippians. Where was he at when he wrote the book of Philippians? Anybody know? He's prison. He's in jail, right? He is suffering. He does not know if his head will be taken from him. He'll be thrown to lions. Uh, He doesn't know what the end of that time in jail in prison is. And yet, what is the theme of Philippians? I'll give you a hint. It's a three-letter word, and it ends with oi. What is it? Joy, right? It is joy. He writes about joy. In fact, it is the passage from which we get rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say Joyce. See, joy, he's writing about it. In the church at Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17 or 18, right? He says, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God. This is the will of God. This is what he wants for you. This is the paradoxical living of a Christian, okay? It does not say you and I will not go through life, or we will go through life and not have pain, Okay? Can I just ask, can we just be real tonight as Paul is being real in 2 Corinthians chapter 6? How many of you in this life have suffered pain? Raise your hand. Now look, okay, look around. Go and keep your hand up, okay? That's just about everybody. We have all hurt. There is in all of our lives reason for what? Sorrow. The world would look at us and say, oh, you poor thing. You poor thing, you, you've gone through that, and that's terrible, and well, you really have reason to be down in the mouth. You really have reason to be glum and ball humbug and woe is me. You really do have reason, you have impetus, motivation for just being a, ugh, not having much joy. And yet God in heaven says, every believer, if you're going to look like a minister of God, you'll rejoice always. You'll rejoice always. That's not natural. <laughs> That doesn't come naturally. But the reality is, though you have every reason to have a sorrow-filled and a sorrow-producing life, the reality is we rejoice. Always. Paul writes from personal example, certainly. 
See, the paradox is clear. You and I as believers, like everyone else in this world, we might have every reason not to smile. Can I tell you, the world, there is a great epidemic in this world. And it's not COVID. You know what it is? There is a lot of unhappy, joyless people. They don't have joy. They don't have happiness. And though their lives do not differ much from ours, it is not like they face much worse things than you and I. The reality is we have a reason, yea, a calling to always rejoice. Can I tell you, just do an experiment. The other day I was out shopping for a pastor's pizza party, and uh, though I'm not feeling like it, I, sh- I like to give people a smile when I pass them in the store. Okay, I went up to Lapeer to Meyer. Okay? And I'll tell you, I, I went by maybe 20, 25 people. You know how people smiled at me? Three people. Okay? One looked at me like I was crazy for smiling. Older lady, but we won't go there. She did. She kind of went, <laughs> I'm not trying, I'm not asking for money, I promise. <laughs> she just smiled. Nodded my head or something like that. Isn't it amazing how, how people wouldn't even smile? Now listen. We're all going through difficult things. We all face trials. We all heartaches. If we looked at each of our lives, we could probably say, you know what? There is reason to have sorrow. Someone has hurt us. Circumstances haven't gone as planned. We've been mistreated. We have reason to have sorrow. But God has called us to paradoxical living. Though we have reason to sorrow, how does he put it? Look at verse number 10. How does he describe it again? He says this, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. The world would look at Paul's life and say, man, you have every reason to, to th- th- wave your fist at God, to turn your, fi- your back on God. Yeah, your life is terrible. You're going through difficult things. It comes one after another, Paul. That's terrible, man. You should just throw in the towel. You have every reason to be mad at God. Paul says, no, 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 no. Always rejoicing as a minister of God. How do we maintain such a paradox? We'll get to that in just a moment. Look at verse 10 again. Look at the middle part. We read just the next paradox, middle verse 10. It says this, as poor, yet making many rich. (laughs) I like this. As poor, yet making many rich. Paradox number two, okay? Paradox number two. Believers should spiritually enrich others even while they might be perceived as being poor. Believers should enrich others even while they might be perceived as being poor, okay? The idea of this statement is that, uh, as, not, as being seen by the world, okay? So this part of verse 10 is the perspective of others. They may look at you and I, and materially speaking, financially speaking, we're poor in their eyes. We don't have much, okay? We're not the millionaires. We're not the people who, who can just spend money without thinking about it. They would not look at us. They would see us as poor. Paul was like this. You remember, as he traveled, he, he lived at the benefit of others. He even did his tent making and other things. He lived worked for a living so he was not seen as rich in fact he would have been seen as poor that's the idea here we haven't been endowed with earthly goods we're not rich in the world's eyes Uh, in fact many of us would be seen as being impoverished compared to those who are considered rich in the world in the world's eyes we have very little we have nothing for many of us here as believers you know we've sacrificed 
much financially in giving to the cause of Christ. You've sacrificed for Christian education. Many of you as parents have done so. You've sacrificed to send your children to camp. You've sacrificed in giving to the local ministry of the local church. You've sacrificed giving to missions around the world. And if people were to look at our bank accounts, if they were to look at our homes, if they were to look at our driveways, they look at them, hey, you don't got much. You're poor. From an earthly perspective and a worldly perspective, it certainly might be true. It was true of Paul uh, that living for God has impoverished him. Maybe they say that about us. And it might be so when you look at it through the eyes of the world. Yet Paul says in the midst, don't miss it, in the midst of one's perceived poverty, the believer enriches others. Did you catch that? In the midst of poverty, we have the ability and the command, the call to enrich others. Now, how in the world does that happen? Most of us don't have the means going around handing out money to others, making them rich while we ourselves work at simply paying our bills, okay? providing for our families, uh, taking care of additional expenses that come up, the unexpected and so forth. Well, here's the contradiction. How can one who is poor enrich another we read an article this week i think it was in washington the state of washington and a guy went down the road and he started throwing hundred dollar bills out his window anybody else read about that that's crazy wasn't it he goes down the bill he throws you i said well he's probably threw a few do you realize how much he threw out two hundred thousand dollars that's a lot of hundred dollar bills many of you who read the article you saw what happened don't you Call, started to cause <laughs> problems on the road and everything else. People pulling off. The police pulled him over and said, sir, you got to stop doing that. It's creating problems back here. People are stopping their cars in the middle of the road. They're getting out. They're searching. It's dangerous and so forth. And he threw out a ton of $100 bills. Here's the funny thing about it, okay? The police station put out a bulletin. They said, folks, all of it's gone. Don't go looking for it. It's been clean. It's been picked clean. <laughs> People did a good job the first time around picking up the money. You and I don't have the means to do that. So here's the paradox. How can one who is poor enrich another? Well, let me ask you this. Let's think about it from God's perspective. Have you given to Fostoria Baptist Church's ministry through tithes and offerings? Well, there are people here and out in our community, here in our midst, people out in the community who have been made spiritually rich through your giving. Though you might be poor in the world's eyes, your giving, your impoverishedness has led to them being spiritually rich. Number two, have you given to faith promise? Have you participated in God growing your faith and providing? Well, there are people scattered around the world who are spiritually rich because you gave. You have, and I have enriched them even though we might be viewed as being poor. Have you given out the gospel in word or written form? There are people then who heard it, who've read it, who have become spiritually rich in Christ through your giving the gospel. We heard in Sunday school today of a, a brother Ken's brother who we've been praying for for salvation came to trust the Lord this week. I mean, hallelujah. Listen, he is rich now in Christ. You say, Pastor Henry, have you looked at his, uh, uh, his bank accounts? And no, I have no idea what he owns materially, but I know he's in Christ. And I know he's rich spiritually. My friend, if you've given toward that, you have given, you've shared the gospel, man, you've enriched someone else, though you yourself may be viewed as being poor by the world. 
It's always interesting to me at Christmas time. You always hear of somebody who is more well off, who is wealthy, going into a store, or excuse me, a restaurant, and leaving a large tip. You ever hear of that? And uh, really blessing somebody, maybe a thousand dollar tip, maybe a five thousand dollar tip. Okay, I haven't worked many jobs where you got tips. I remember as a third or fourth grader, somewhere around there, I delivered newspapers. Anybody ever deliver newspapers with me? Good, excellent. Many of us here. And I remember at Christmas time, I'd get a tip every once in a while. I remember getting a quarter. Maybe a dollar bill, something like that. And as I deliver newspapers and uh, come Christmas time, maybe a little box of chocolates or something like that. I remember getting tips. But boy, we hear stories of people who go into restaurants and they leave a $1,000 tip, a $5,000 tip. And sometimes we look at that and we say, man, I, I, I wish I could do that. I, I wish I could just be a blessing financially to somebody in that way. And maybe we don't have the material means to do that. Okay, maybe sometimes we wish we were the waitress or waiter, amen, and uh, be on the other receiving end of that, but we wish that we were there. Now, let me ask you this, and let's think about this for a moment. Maybe we simply wish we could give out a $100 bill, okay? Maybe you have a $100 bill. Now, just to, for disclosure's sake, this was not mine. I had to go search somebody who had a $100 bill in their wallet, okay? I think it was about the third person I asked, but anyway, we won't go there. I won't tell you who it is because we don't want them robbed in the parking lot, Amen. <laughs> Okay, $100 bill. Let's say, hey, I'd love to be able to go walk up to somebody, much like that guy in Washington, and just throw out $100 bills or hand a $100 bill to somebody, and you say, man, you know what? Now, let me ask you that. Would that make them rich? Well, no, certainly not. Okay, but here's the reality. Let me ask you this. Which one would you rather hand out? Which has the power to make somebody rich? You say, a $100 bill, certainly in our economy, that will hardly buy groceries, Amen. Won't make anybody rich. Even if this was a $1,000 bill, or even if this was a million dollars, can I tell you right now, you have the possibility, potential, and power to make somebody rich by handing this out. A gospel track. Because my friend, this, and because it's not mine, I thought about burning it, but I won't. Uh, This will go away. This will be gone. It ain't going anywhere. It ain't going to heaven. It ain't going to hell. You can't take it with you. But you do this, my friend, whoever trusts in Jesus Christ, you'll take them with you. You'll make them rich in Christ. You'll help them to understand what true treasures are. You see, my friend, that is the, doxa, that is the paradoxical living of a Christian. So the world might look at you and I and they say, oh, you're poor. You don't have much. How could you make somebody rich? Well, my friend, we know the good news that can make anybody rich. The truth of Jesus excuse me, the truth of Jesus Christ. So how do we make sure we do that? We'll get to that in a moment. Look at verse number 10 again. We see the third and final paradox, if you will. Verse number 10, we've seen as already, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich. The third one, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. Now, I'll tell you, that is probably the greatest to me of the paradox. Having nothing but possessing everything? Paul, you don't make any sense. That's so contradictory. Yeah, that's why it's called a paradox, amen? Here's how we word it. Believers should live in the knowledge that they possess all things, though materially their hands are empty. Though materially our hands are empty. Now this is a personal perspective. Paradox number two, in the middle of verse 10, that was a worldly perspective. They're looking at you and I and saying, well, you don't have much. How can you make somebody rich? You're poor. You don't own much. How can you make somebody rich? That's the world looking at us. 
this is a personal evaluation. This is a personal estimation. You look at your bank accounts and you're thankful that you can pay the bills that month. Uh, you look at, at your possessions and maybe you don't have as much as uh, uh, Joe Smo, your neighbor, the, uh, whoever their, their name is. You, you don't have much. Your personal estimation. Paul's reminding us of a truth here. See, earthly poverty empty-handedness of great possessions here on earth is contrasted with the lasting heavenly riches. Material scarcity is distinct from spiritual wealth. Temporal gains differ greatly from eternal treasures. See, every believer, though he might have nothing or little here on earth, belongs to Jesus Christ. And in him, we have everything that is anything. If it matters, you have it. If it's important, you have it. If it will last for eternity and it is of great importance, you have it in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's saying. He's realizing, I mean, I, I don't have much. I, I think in many ways Paul probably traveled with what he owned. He didn't have much in his hand. His hands were empty, if we could put it that way. But he understood that in Jesus Christ, he have everything that is of lasting value. Anything that matters, anything that is important, anything that has lasting value, he has it. Paul knew from personal practice the reality of, teaching, uh, of the teaching of Christ. Remember what Christ taught? Seek ye first kingdom of God. And his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. It's amazing how God will speak often in the New Testament. Do not miss it, young person. Listen to me. God says in the New Testament that I'm going to give you all things as you follow me. That's amazing. Because I'll tell you, as a preacher, I'm not filthy rich. I don't have the greatest, the newest of hardly anything. I, I, I don't, my, much like you folks here, but I, I don't own a tons of things and have money, and I, I can retire at any moment. I, we don't have that. Well, God says, though, you and I have all things, all things that matter, all things that are important. See, he would write the same church here at Corinth at another point in the first letter that he wrote them. Notice what he says, 1 Corinthians 3. 21, 23. Therefore, let no man glory in men, for all things are yours. What a statement. He goes on, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours. And ye are Christ. That's why we have it all. And Christ is God. Great statement. He would also write the church at Rome. The believers there, the same encouragement uh, in different words. Notice what he writes to, Rome, to the church of Rome here. He says this in 832. He that spareth not his own son, but he delivered, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him, notice the statement, also freely give us what? All things. All things. So as you and I look around, we look at our own hands, it's easy to think, man, I don't have much. Boy, television, social media, and what you see of the people of this world, and they have so much, and I have so little, it's easy to get fixated upon that. But then we're reminded about the paradoxical living of a Christian. God says, my hands may be empty of material things, but in Jesus Christ, I have all things that matter spiritually and he boy he adds things unto us in many different ways we are blessed beyond our comprehension we have in christ all things that truly matter for eternity now listen to me listen to me very carefully this statement lose the perspective of eternity set that aside in your mind and your heart and you can quickly become discontent with what is in your hand children can i encourage you this world will try to make you discontent as a child of god through their commercials, through their offerings, through materialism, they'll tell you children, they'll want you to think that you have nothing. 
that what you have, you need the next, the best thing, yeah, that, that you don't have much, you need to work and go get it, and the government should give it to you, and you need all these other things. The world will say, you need this to be happy. You need this to be joyful. You need this. You don't have much. You deserve it. You have a right to it. And they'll offer you everything in this earth. And my friend, this earth and everything therein shall fade away. But the things that you have in Jesus Christ, and my God has described it as all things, will last for eternity. And you will be blessed beyond your imagination. I hath not seen nor ear heard what God hath prepared for them that love him. Now follow him. All things will be added unto you. Though empty-handed, though having very little, Paul says, you and I ought to live in the mindset, in the knowledge that I have all things in Christ. As you and I are here today, as we go to work tomorrow, as we work to pay bills and we try to balance our bank accounts and such, my friend, we are rich in Christ. We have much in Him. But boy, you lose that perspective of eternity, you'll falter in your testimony and ministering as a minister of God. You'll be little impactful for the cause of Christ. May I just ask you tonight, just about to close, but I ask you, when you look at your life and hands tonight, are they empty or are they full? What's your personal perspective of your life? Your answer will say a lot about whether you are subscribing to an earthly perspective or a heavenly perspective. Okay? Do you remember the definition? Real quick. Do you remember the definition of paradox? A statement that is seemingly contradictory, yet is true based upon acceptable premises or facts. Now, this asks the question, okay? We've seen the paradoxes, the obvious contradiction, okay? You're poor, yet you can make people rich in each one of these. You're, you have a life that should produce sorrow, but you're always rejoicing as a Christian. Uh, you look at your hands, and he puts it here, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. So that, we've seen the contradiction, so the question is, what's the premise or the truth that makes this true living, makes it possible for us to live this way? Look at verse 1, if you will, with me. Notice what it says, verse number 1. We then, as workers together with him, beseech you that receive not the, what's the next word? Grace. Let's try it again. What's the next word? Grace. The grace. Whose grace? The grace of God. Okay? The grace of God in vain. Okay? That is wasted giving it to you. That it is empty. That it's been given to you, and boy, yeah, you haven't spent it well. Okay? Um, as, as a parent, have you ever given your child money? Have you ever given them something to spend, and you're like, you bought that with it? <laughs> you spent it on that? Yeah, that was in vain. That was empty. That was wasted. And so this verse comes to our Heavenly Father saying what? Okay? I, I'm going to give you my grace on a daily basis. How are you spending it? How are you spending it? Are you spending it in such a way that you know what? Okay, this life today, something, uh, I got news that ought to make me sorrowful. But by God's grace, I'm going to rejoice in it. In everything, give thanks. Maybe you're saying, you know what? There's an unexpected repair to the car. There's an unexpected repair to the furnace or the AC, depending on Michigan weather. Okay, there's unexpected costs here. So that, man, I, I, we hardly have anything in the bank account. The grace of God will help you to look past your bank account and understand that you have spiritual riches to give away. You'll focus on the ministry of God. You'll look at the person that you cross in the gas station, you cross paths with. You'll have, look for the opportunity and say, hey, can I give you this track? Can I tell you about Jesus Christ? Grace helps us to not get fixated on how the world looks at us and defines us as poor, but you and I can enrich someone else. 
You know what grace also does? Grace is the ability by which you and I look at our hands, and though materially speaking, we might not have much. We look at our garage, we might not have much. We look at our bank accounts, we might not have much. But grace calls us to look and see what we have in Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ, my friend, we have all things. We possess all things. And so the daily grace that God gives us, and I just remind you how we define it, all of God's resources for every circumstance and experience. God's grace helps us to look at it. And it makes us or enables us, shall we put it this way, it's the power by which we can live as paradoxical Christians in a world that doesn't understand. How can you rejoice over that? You've just gotten bad news from the doctor. Yeah, you just lost money in that. Yeah, yeah, your car just broke down. You just hit a deer. How can you rejoice in that? The grace of God, amen. God gives out grace. Paradoxical living, paradoxical Christianity. Here it is, real quick. In the midst of life, with its fair share of sorrow, you can always rejoice. Pastor Henry, I can't do that. Wrong. God's given you his grace. Now the question is, will you make it in vain or not? Will it be wasted on you? Will it be spent in a, in a, uh, in a way that's not good? Or will God's grace, you'll say, okay, I'm going to take up the grace of God, and I can always rejoice regardless of the life that in most people will call sorrow and heartache. Number two, the reality is when the world says you are poor and needy and living below the poverty line, you can enrich others by giving them the treasures of the gospel and the knowledge of your God. How do you do that? By the grace of God. Uh, Without me you can do nothing. Yea, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me, gives me his grace. So I can enrich others. It's not about my bank account. It's not about me being able to financially help someone else all the time. No, it's about enriching them through the gospel of Jesus Christ, the knowledge of my God. Last but not least, though you may be destitute of many material possessions here on earth, you and I can still press forward every day knowing that you have all things that matter in Christ Jesus. And the grace of God helps us to do just that. To press forward, to keep moving day by day, realizing I may not have much on this earth, but I have all things in Christ Jesus. I don't know about you, but I sure am thankful for God's grace. May you and I be able to live by it and through it, the paradoxical Christianity that God calls us to. Father, we thank you for your word. We're grateful for it. And Lord, we're thankful especially for this grace we've talked about. That you have (laughs) encouraged us not to allow to be in vain. So, Father, in this invitation that follows, I pray, Lord, we'd search our hearts. We'd make sure that there are ways in which we are truly living according to the paradoxes that you have presented in your word. Father, there's some here that have caused the, are living more a life of sorrow. And, and Lord, um, don't rejoice much. Would you convict them of that? Would you help them to tap into your grace so they can rejoice in all things? Father, maybe some of us have gotten so fixated upon our poorness <laughs> on the world viewing us as poor, that we have forgotten that we have the grace of God by which we can enrich others by sharing the gospel. Father, help us to purpose to do just that. Father, I pray that you would likewise help us now to press forward. Though our hands may be empty here of material possessions on earth, though we may not have much or as much as the next person, whatever the case, I pray, Father, we'd be constantly reminded of all that we have in Jesus Christ. My Father, there is not one saved person here that is not rich in Christ. We praise you for that. 
Now, would you remind us of that, and may we live in light of that truth? My Father, thank you so very much for your grace. Thanking you. Thank you for helping us to and giving us what we need to be obedient to what you call us to do. Now, bless in this invitation as only you can. With heads bowed and eyes closed, I'll ask you to join me all over the auditorium. The piano begins to play. This altar is open. You can certainly kneel there at your seat. Let's do business with him, shall we?